Welcome to the Felon File Podcast. A review of historical true crime in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, author, and researcher. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast Felon File, where we look at crimes, punishment, court cases, incidents that have happened in the past, law enforcement situations, the good guys, the bad guys, all kinds of stuff, mostly crime-related or at least law or court-related, a lot of it. And thank you, Victoria, for starting us out and opening us up with another episode. Victoria is going to run the control board for us and help us produce this episode, as she always does. Thank you again, Victoria. And we are coming to you recorded. We're coming to you today again from the Scratch Ankle International Recording Studio and Podcast Creation location here in Scratch Ankle, North Carolina, west of Asheville, East of East of Canton and make a left. You can't mess us. Today we're going to look at some old court cases that actually are kind of precedent setting. One involves something that a lot of you probably weren't even aware of. Did you know that America's first female postmaster following the adoption of the federal constitution was a lady in the village of, and the North Carolina village of Hertford in Pequims County. In fact, she was a very outstanding and outspoken woman. And within a year after her commission in 1792, she decided her time was worth more than the income she was actually getting from a federal job. And even after getting a raise from the Postmaster General's office, she was informed that she could keep 40% of her receipts instead of the 20% that she had been retaining. This failed to keep her in the office, but Sarah DeCrow was America's first female postmaster, and that was in North Carolina. Sarah resigned on October 1st of 1794, according to the post office records, and a gentleman by the name of Thomas McNearder was appointed to replace her. They don't have any record of just how much was paid out to Sarah, but postal records indicate that her successor during his first year earned the huge amount of 59 cents. No wonder Sarah wanted to get on to other business. Unfortunately, however, she lived only another year or so after resigning from the post office, and this ended a very colorful career as not only as postmistress, but as a businesswoman. And again, we're talking 1792. 1794 is when she resigned. Not much is known about her early life. 
but it is surmised that she was the daughter of a John and Mary Moore. She married Ichabob Delano, and they had two children, Mary and Robert. Delano unfortunately passed away in 1774, and Sarah then remarried a Robert De Crow, operator of a local ordinary house. Some of you out there may not be familiar with the term ordinary or ordinary house. Uh, it's a tavern, and it's what they called a, a bar back in the 1700s, an ordinary house. Now, her new husband operated a local ordinary house and distillery. And apparently he was a very good businessman himself because he provided Sarah with a very good living and she helped him run his tavern. Unfortunately, 10 years after they were married in 1784, uh, he also passed away, leaving Sarah with two more children, a total of four, adding Sarah and Elizabeth, and of course, the ordinary house to operate, or the tavern. Perhaps it was natural that back then, I know it is today, for tongues to wag and people to start talking about the widow and her house guest, because not only was it a tavern, but it was a guest house as well. Now, after one individual, a Hincha Gilliam, Mr. Gilliam started making some, let's say, inappropriate remarks about, about Sarah. And being the straight-up person Sarah is and, the, and a no-nonsense proprietor, Sarah went straight to the sheriff when she learned that Gilliam was saying inappropriate things about her. In an affidavit that she filed charging Gilliam with slander, she said that he had spread the story that Sarah was, quote, a whore, unquote. And I can prove that Nat Williams, a gentleman by the name of Nathaniel Williams, who at this time of our speaking, scandalous and malicious activity while he was boarded in the ordinary house and lodged in the same house that Sarah also lived in and that Sarah was involved in keeping or keeps of Mr. Williams. Now I had to do some research on that. I didn't quite understand what that meant. Uh, the meaning of that said that Sarah basically lived in a state of fornication and adultery with this Nathaniel Williams fellow, an open violation of law of human and divine. That's what the early legal books called it. Of course, it didn't take long for the word to get back to Sarah, and her own wrath began to show, and she went after Mr. Williams with a vengeance. Well, he ended up going to court and being confronted with these accusations and that he had been making these statements. Suddenly, Mr. Gilliam couldn't remember having even said such a thing. Court records say 
If I did use them, it was not with any intention of injuring Sarah, and that I hadn't any malicious view of hurting the reputation and good fame of said Sarah, that on the contrary, he entertains the highest degree of respect for Mr. Crow, and has every reason to esteem her as a very good neighbor. After making this kind of open court apology and backing up her good standing in the community, Sarah accepted his apology and dropped her lawsuit. And the criminal aspect of the slander case, which at that time, talking bad about people could be considered a criminal law violation. Now, of course, within two years, though, Sarah ended up back in court. Now, this time she was the defendant, and officials ended up charging her with giving service beyond that usually furnished at ordinaries or taverns, particularly in regard to the sale of non-tax-paid liquor, a habit that worked to the great injury of the revenue of the government, unquote. Why should she bother with being a loose lady when she could probably make more money selling tax-free liquor? Sarah being a shrewd businesswoman, and she demonstrated in still another court case in 1791, one of her lodgers, a Dr. Ebenezer Belknap, skipped town without paying his bill. Well, Sarah, knowing her way about the business, went to court and obtained an order attaching the doctor's possessions, which he had unfortunately left behind. Among the property that she seized were clothing, personal articles, an assortment of medical supplies and equipment, and perhaps even worse, the good doctor's account book showing who owed him money. Now, Sarah's public life raised eyebrows among the women of Hartford and apparently didn't sully her reputation among the menfolk. For these were the same men who recommended her for an appointment as the first female postmaster. The title was the title she held was officially called Deputy Postmaster. And of course this was after the adoption of the federal constitution. North Carolina produces some very, very powerful women. Keep that in mind next time you're visiting here. And if you're one of our powerful women who live in North Carolina that's listening now, thank you. For our next Shade of Blue story, we're going to have another court case. Now, this is a kind of an unusual court case that ended up going to the North Carolina Supreme Court for a final review. And the North Carolina Supreme Court put out their findings in this case showing how seriously they took the allegations. Our story starts with Mr. William Linkhaw, who was a very strict and loyal member of the Methodist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. He was a man of exemplary deployment. Now, he apparently was a very, very honest man, a very devout man, 
and a very happy man. And he liked to sing praise to the Lord. Singing in church was one of his greatest pleasures. That was what kind of got him into trouble. His singing was definitely not one of the greater pleasures of the rest of the congregation. The problem was that William sang loud. And it wasn't necessarily that he sang loud that was the problem. It was the fact that he didn't sing very good at all. He sang so loudly and so poorly, in fact, he ended up being arrested and convicted of disturbing the peace in church and disturbing his fellow worshipers. Witnesses in the case that when it went to trial uh, was included the right Reverend Nellie Ray, who testified that Link Hall's voice rang above everybody else and was heard after the congregation and the other singers had stopped singing. They could still hear the man, and he probably was still singing. Uh, things got so bad that the preacher began to read the hymns rather than allow them to be sung. And suggestions from his fellow church members were not very well heeded. It was his duty, he thought, to sing loud to praise the Lord. He said maybe the trouble was that the others just weren't singing enthusiastically enough themselves. Maybe they ought to follow his lead and really belt it out. Well, William's singing made part of the congregation laugh and enjoy the service. And the other part, as in most groups we have of individuals, they didn't like it at all. They felt that it was disturbing and they became quite mad about it. Well, the case ended up going to court. Well, the case ended up going to court where some of the mad individuals in the congregation filed complaints upon him. And in 1872, Judge Daniel Russell in Lumberton, North Carolina, heard the case. Uh, Daniel Russell later actually became governor of North Carolina, on a side note. Recognizing the uniqueness of the case before him, Russell asked, of course, for a demonstration of his singing power. And, of course, William was very happy to oblige, and he cut loose right there in court. The judge, the jury, the attorneys, the spectators, even the people on the street were amazed, to say the least. Well, Judge no longer had any doubt, and he put the tr- and he put the case before the jury. William, regardless of his loyalty to the church and to the Lord, the jury found that he was in fact disturbing the peace, found guilty. William was fined one penny, and not to be undone, he appealed to the North Carolina Supreme Court, which heard the case in the fall term of 1873, where you can actually pull up the court case and the document, and the court documents. Now, the dignified Supreme Court, after hearing the case, 
soon recognized that William's singing caused a disturbance of considerable proportion. Now, on the other hand, even the prosecution conceded that it really was the man's intention or his desire to bring misery to anybody. In fact, it was admitted that he enjoyed taking part in the religious services. The Supreme Court, with rare insight, and I use that term very sparingly, ruled, quote, it would seem that the defendant, William Linkow, is a proper subject for the discipline of his church, but not for the discipline of the courts. His conviction was overturned, and it gave him his penny back. Now, one wonders if in their deliberations, the justices may have counted their blessings for not being members of the congregation of the Methodist Church in Lumberton, and happy they were in Raleigh going to church. I don't know. But that goes back to freedom of expression, freedom of religion. One of the first tests of an individual's right to sing at the top of his lungs was in North Carolina. And you can't deny that because I've seen the court records. Well, that's another episode of The Felon File for you. I hope you enjoyed these two Shade of Blue stories. Going back in a little bit of North Carolina history in our courts and how we in North Carolina saw things perhaps differently, perhaps not. People are people no matter really where they're from. And speaking of people being people, if you have the opportunity in the couple in the coming weeks remember it's a really good idea if do something good for somebody take a stand on something positive it's good remember it's good for you it's good for other people and perhaps it will spread so in the meantime when you're belting out that song out in public and having a good time and this makes me wonder the guys with the bass in their car behind me. Is that protected? Ah, that's another case for the courts to decide. Well, if you'd like further information on us, you can check us out on our website, scottlunsfordauthor.com or felonfile.com. You can also send us some information if you like to, some questions, some suggestions for good stories that you may have come across. We'd love to research and, and maybe put together a podcast. We'd love to hear from y'all. And not just in North Carolina, getting contacts from all over the world. And that is really, really fantastic as far as we're concerned. We appreciate every one of y'all. And if you'd like to have a t-shirt, you can pick them up on our website or, or pick up a new coffee mug where you can Show the people that you work with that you mean business by drinking your morning coffee out of a felon file coffee mug. All right, Victoria, go ahead and close us out. And don't wave your arm at me like that. Go ahead and close us out. And I'm turning the control panel back over to you. 
Thanks again, folks, for listening. We appreciate you. Bye, y'all. This has been a Shade of Blue story on the Felon File podcast. With your host, Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, author, and researcher. Go to felonfile.com for more information. This is Victoria, your producer.